Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm quietly confident you're going to like today's guest. One of the reasons I think you'll like her is because she is about to outperform all of our previous guests put together in terms of sheer range. Victorian London. The uh, Roman walls, meh. This guest is going to deliver a history of London starting in the Cretaceous era. And if you like what you hear, well, what we didn't get a chance to say in the original recording is that you can hear our guest talk on the 9th of September at 7.30 at the Doodle Bar in Battersea, which is a little bit upstream from where the uh, hippopotamus is currently living, where you can treat yourself to a confection of poetry and guerrilla ecology, courtesy of Tom Chivers, Dan Raven Ellison, and my guest today, Victoria Herridge. It's all part of Totally Thames. Back to the present day, and we're off to South Kensington. The present day being the 5th of September 2014, and this being Londonist Out Loud. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone through from your front door. Listener, I've got a confession. I have wanted to get into this building for quite a while. And finally, my wish has come true. I am in a building where I'm told there are 300 odd scientists. And indeed, uh, coming back of house here, I've just seen a couple of fossils. I'm here with Dr. Victoria Herridge Tory, who is, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I need to nail down exactly what you do here. I'm a paleobiologist and I work here, and my particular research specialism is uh, the evolution of dwarf elephants on islands. But more broadly, I'm interested in the Ice Age and the animals that live there. Now, the listener will have noticed something rather unusual in the middle of that introduction, and it's surely the dwarf elephants on the islands business. <laughs> yeah, quite. Well, um, surprisingly, they're very, very common, or they were. They're all extinct now. But um, back in the Ice Age, so across the last two and a half million years or so, when elephants and mammoths found themselves on islands like Sicily, Malta, Sardinia, Crete, Cyprus, they always did the same thing, evolutionarily speaking. They always evolved to become smaller. So there were these ancestral, big fossil elephants, like the straight-tusked elephant, which was all over Europe, weighed about 10 tonnes, was four metres tall. As I said, it was everywhere, including the UK. So there we've got straight-tusked elephant fossils from places like Clacton-on-Sea, 
for example, um, just off the A13 on your way down to South End near to Thurrock Lakeside, We've got some there too. But these massive elephants, when they got to islands like Sicily, they would sometimes become as small as just one metre tall as adults, weighing under 100 kilograms. So that is a very, very, very small elephant. In fact, it kind of turns the idea of what we think about an elephant on its head. I mean, you had these kind of dwarf elephants and mini mammoths, and it gets a bit oxymoronic. So when you say you're into dwarf elephants... Uh, really what you're saying is you're into elephants from that period. Yep, so I know about elephants that are big, mammoths that are big. Um, I guess I am most interested in the small ones because they tell us so much about the way evolution works and um, uh, and that is what interests me. But you cannot get away from this incredible um, lost world that was Ice Age Europe and Ice Age Britain. It's a great example of that. Now look, you know the agenda here is London-centric and Mm -hmm. sometimes I have to weigh out whether it's a good idea to go off track early (laughs) and I know that the question why did elephants get smaller when they went on to I know that's going to take us off beam pretty quickly but I've got to (laughs) can we do it in a way that's going to bring us back to the subject of uh, London yeah I mean it's the shortest answer is we aren't exactly sure why we've got a few ideas Um, we think it's to do with the island environment because it's always islands that you have dwarf elephants on and um, of course that becomes interesting because Britain we think of today as an island but it didn't have any dwarf elephants or dwarf mammoths on it so that in itself is quite fascinating but the fundamental thing about islands is that they are different from the mainland they're smaller and there's a separation between them and the mainland so animals living there had to have got there in the first place and that creates a unique set of ecological circumstances there are usually no or very few predators and there are a lot fewer individuals and species overall which means the animals living there have a different ecological setting so if you're an elephant on the mainland being big is great because it's a good anti-predation strategy but it has its downsides it means it takes you a long time to grow up a long time to have babies long time for your babies to grow up so from an evolutionary perspective being big has its problems because you're going to pass on fewer genes to the next generation but if being big is a great way to stay alive and have babies then it kind of works for you put an elephant in a situation with no predators and fewer competitors then sometimes it can evolve out of that big body size niche towards a smaller size which may mean generally speaking it can pass on more genes to the next generation because smaller animals tend to grow up faster and have more babies more often does that suggest then that the UK was connected to the mainland? Were we a peninsula at the time or something? For a lot of the Ice Age, yes, that's exactly the case. So really, Britain as we know it, an island, only really came into being about 400,000 years ago or so. Now, that was just after the end of one of the biggest glaciations to hit the world. So this Ice Age, because I should probably clarify at this point, actually, Ice Age is one of those terms we use in many different settings. So broadly speaking, we're in an Ice Age right now. We've got ice at the poles, but we're in what's called a warm stage within that. So we have interglacials, which are warm stages, and glacials, which are cold stages, and that's when the ice sheets really expand. Now, 450,000 years ago was a really extreme glaciation, and the ice sheets at the North Pole and across the Northern Hemisphere were really enormous and they reached as far south as Hornchurch and Finchley Road. So I always like to think now, I look at the overground map of London, that sort of northern edge going around between sort of, you know, West Hampstead and all the way through down to sort of Hornchurch, you can get there. It's almost like you're going along the edge of an incredibly large ice sheet. If you look out of the window, you should see in your mind's eye 
kilometres thick wall of ice and a polar desert all around. Are you, are you serious that the Ice Age knocked on the door of, of London in that way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, the, so I mean we see that today in the geology, so the gravel pits that are quite common across um, London and Essex, where we still dig out gravel to this day, and lots of things like um, uh, sort of the brick pits so the things that, yeah, which gave rise to the beautiful London stock, those are sand pits which are sands and loesses that were laid down by the sedimentation coming off the grinding of these big ice sheets like that, so we still sort of, you know, we've got the remnants of it that we can pick up and really fascinating, I mean we laugh about things like it being at Finchley Road and Hornchurch and places like that but of course we find the evidence for these past periods when we dig and quite often those digs are the result of massive industrial activities so like Crossrail and things like that that's when things come to light right right the way through from the origins of the london underground right the way through to the present day big industrial scale projects always turn up these really interesting surprises and help us reconstruct the world but this big ice sheet which came all the way down to london um, and obviously much further across North America and across the Baltics and places like that. When you've got that much ice frozen up in an ice cap, it's of course going to have an effect on the sea level. And so sea level would have to be much lower. It's like the inverse we worry about with global warming and the ice sheets melting. Now, so, so there's only so much water at any given yeah, point? Yes, you've got a closed system in the world and if you freeze the water up, it's not entering back into the water cycle and the sea levels will drop. And so at that point, the sea level was much, much lower. But from And so Britain was connected to the mainland but interestingly even before then when it was warmer it was still connected to the mainland and this gets a bit complicated but it's because there was a ridge of chalk that ran from Calais to Dover if you've been to France you can see the white cliffs of Dover coming back and you should be able to see the white cliffs in the other direction as well that used to be a continuous ridge now that massive ice sheet 450,000 years ago was actually emptying its water into this big glacial lake that was dammed up behind this chalk ridge between France and the UK. And when finally that massive ice sheet melted, that glacial lake breached that bridge and caused a catastrophic mega flood that ploughed its way through the geology and gouged out the English Channel. And it's only after that event that Britain became an island in subsequent warm stages. Uh, okay, listener. Um, the presenter thinks, how do we bring this back to London? And I think I've got a way. You mentioned Crossrail. Somebody I was speaking to at the Crossrail dig was talking about the amber deposits that they found in one of the shafts that they dug and the suggestion that there was a forest where London currently is. What I wondered is if we could do uh, a history of London before London. Yes. Yeah, well, quite. I mean, so it start, I imagine the, the amber, I don't know for sure because I haven't heard that episode, but I'm guessing the amber is much, much older than the fossils that I generally work on. So, in London and the southeast of England, at the bottom what you have is chalk mostly, and that was laid down, I think, in the Cretaceous. We should probably check that. But then above that is a layer of thick clay that was laid down in a period we call the Eocene. Can we? Is there any way we've got of? Uh, uh, well, I, I, my favourite example of uh, the life of the earth is if you stretch your arms out this is a Bill Bryson one, if you stretch your arms out and then uh, shave off the end of one of your fingernails then uh, the proportion of your stretched arms that that represents is mankind and it it often strikes me actually when we talk about Doctor Who or time travel or things like that that if he were to pop up at random he'd essentially arrive in a place full of rocks and that's probably it for most of the the planet's history but for example the Cretaceous when when is that? We're talking about the last of 65 million years onwards really Can we go back in percentage of the life 
the, oh the life of the earth. So you're asking me to do maths I can't do off the top of my head. What's um, that out of 4.6 million? It's the total life of the earth. I'm having to get my phone out right now. This is very, very shameful. If only I could do instantaneous maths. Right, so... Uh, ba-dum, ba-dum. Calculator... Uh, how many zeros? So we've got 4.6 billion. So that's American billion. So 1, 2, 3, 6, I think. Live, live maths, listener. I know, it's really thrilling, isn't it? <laughs> live maths on an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> The answer is seven. <laughs> to the minus eight. <laughs> it's like ten to the minus eight. So that's naught point naught 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 seven of a percent. So less than one percent, I think we could say here. Earth has been around for a long time. Um, so yes, we're talking about even even that large number of sixty-five million years is a tiny percentage of the total time that the world has been around. Well, I just need a moment then because there's yeah. smoke, smoke coming out of my ears at that thought. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Obviously, there was life around. For I mean, we're talking about the beginnings of the world, and then life came a bit later, quite a lot later actually. Um, but this still is like a blip, if you like, that we've got here. But that's the very very basis. These chalks that were laid down, and that was you know laid down in a kind of a, in a sea environment. So the chalks and things like that are all these kind of micro organisms and shells and things like that that have all been laid down um, to create that white chalky substance and within that we get things like flint which is good to remember because that comes important as an important sort of material resource for the humans that come in at the end now on top of that we get a period about sort of you know 50 to 30 million years ago called the eocene when at that point there was a shallow tropical sea sort of lying over london and the surrounding areas and that laid down this clay which we call now the london clay it's the London clay. Um, at that time, you can imagine the fossils we find are quite rare because it was mostly a shallow sea, but at the edges, sometimes monkeys turn up and sort of small mammals. And, but quite often it's marine stuff we find, fishes and stuff like that. And so there's some beautiful um, Eocene fish that turn up on places like the Isle of Sheppey in Kent. You follow the Thames out in the Medway up to the sea. And then on top of that stuff, actually, everything above that is much more recent. And these are the gravels, mostly, that were laid down by the various ice ages that swept over London. And actually, a lot of them are fairly young. So it's you know, quite a big hiatus of time, which is interesting in itself, and I can't explain that. So we sort of jump from this Eocene period of like up to 30 million years, right up almost effectively to the present day, to um, the last million years or so. <laughs> that's, that's nearly the present day for you. Pretty much. I mean, the animals start to become familiar. I'm in my comfort zone because the numbers are small enough that my brain can cope with them. Um, and humans, or at least human relatives, were around. And that's, for me, when it gets really fascinating because the world is enough like the present day that I really feel that it can inform the way we understand the world around us at the moment and it has a direct relevance to reconstructing the story of our own species and you know how we came to be and what we were doing at that time wow that's fantastic we've done a lot of london history we've, we've done a lot of georgian london history we've never done uh, the pre-london london history uh, yeah, there's lots of it and i'm probably not the best person to talk to about the humans because i'm sort of a, a fossil mammal expert and whilst humans are mammals it's quite a separate discipline um relying a lot on sort of the archaeology of the humans themselves because human fossils are really really rare and so there's so so very few have been found across the world in total and of course, for Britain, that means there's only a, only a tiny number. So what we often have to rely on to understand those past humans that were living here 
is the traces they left behind and the stone tools they made and the cut marks they left on the animals that they ate and things like that. So we know that they were here, but we don't necessarily have the greatest insight into the types of people that they were, except from what the culture, um, what their culture says about them, which I suppose is in some ways rather beautiful. Um, but bringing it back to London, I mean, that I mentioned earlier that massive ice sheet. I mean, that was a really important event in the history of London, I mean, the prehistory of London, but also the history of London, really, because it was that massive ice sheet that fundamentally changed the course of the River Thames. So before that big glaciation, the River Thames actually flowed, it was, well, it actually flowed north through St Albans and came out at, um, around sort of in the coast of Norfolk and was really just a tributary of the Rhine flowing into the North Sea. But, so you can imagine this massive ice sheet coming down, right, right the way to Finchley Road. It cut off that path and it forced the River Thames to change its course and flow southwards and flow along the valley that it has today. So are we thinking of the, the wash as being the former Thames estuary? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. They would have, you know, if you, and there was also another river they called the Bivan River, which came out around there. And these were two really important rivers for um, an earlier stage of human occupation. So another thing you have to understand about what we call the Ice Age, I mentioned these warm stages and cold stages, but they happen in a kind of rhythm. So every 100,000 years, you've got a shift from a warm stage to a cold stage. Now, mostly the warm stages are quite slim blips in this generally cold pattern. So we're currently in a warm blip. Um, but because it's a rhythmic pattern it means that there were periods of time when Britain was a lovely place to be nice and warm like today maybe sometimes even slightly warmer and then there were big periods of time when it was not a pleasant place to be at all when the ice sheets came down and covered pretty much all of North and the Midlands um, leaving southern Britain open but mostly a bit of a polar desert and not a great place for humans to live in so in one of those previous warm stages we had the earliest evidence of humans in britain about eight hundred thousand years ago slightly older when they got these footprints they found a place called haysborough in norfolk um which um which are in these kind of earlier warm stage sediments that show that people were there then they've got some stone tools as well but they haven't yet found any fossils so we know that people were there we don't know what species of people what kind of ancient human because we've only got their traces uh, right is this where the, this uh, there seems to be a, a little bit of controversy going on at the moment around uh, neanderthal and is it homo sapiens we well we are our species modern humans is called homo sapiens um neanderthals are called homo neanderthalensis um they are our close cousins and they've been around in europe for quite a while and uh Humans, modern humans didn't really leave Africa until maybe um, 120,000 years ago or thereabouts and then we came in and um, maybe had a few early excursions at that point but only really properly made it into Europe proper um, in the last sort of 40, 50, 60,000 years and then of course there's this big debate as to when what happened when humans and Neanderthals met now we know they interbred from their DNA you and I probably have somewhere between 1% and 4% Neanderthal DNA in us. Most people outside of Africa do. Um, so we know that there was some interbreeding, but yet the Neanderthals went extinct, their culture disappeared, and we don't have any any remnants of Neanderthal-type skeletons after a, a certain point, which I think is about 30,000 years ago. But those dates are quite controversial, and I'm not sure what the controversies you're talking about. So, Well, I've, I've, I've read a few bits and pieces. I thought there was a bit of controversy as to whether we polished them off or whether mm. something else altogether happened and the, the, the length of time uh, over which the two were exposed to one yeah. another. Yeah. 
Uh, and also there seemed to be a, a bit of alarm about the idea that we'd interbred in the first place, which came out uh, not, not so very long ago. No, like no. I mean, for a long time, there was a, it was felt, yeah, it was a kind of a big debate as to whether or not we interbred. And then the original evidence that people got from the ancient DNA suggested that we didn't interbreed. But that was because they were only looking at mitochondrial DNA, which is only ever going to tell you the story of um, mother to daughter, mother to daughter, mother to daughter, because, uh, because effectively your mitochondrial DNA you get from your mum and mums only only ones who pass it on so dads don't pass it on so you only get half the story so when you looked at the mitochondria there wasn't any evidence that neanderthals and modern humans were interbreeding but when they finally were able to sequence the whole genome so all the dna the nuclear dna as well then there was evidence that modern day humans have got neanderthal genes in them which is quite fascinating um so yeah definitely they so that indicates they definitely met they definitely interacted um it doesn't really get us any closer to talking or to maybe fully understanding why Neanderthals went extinct and were we responsible. And then the question becomes very broad. I mean, what do we mean by responsible? I mean, are we talking? Yeah, I mean, people often think sort of full-out warfare. We can't see any evidence for that. I mean, I don't know where you'd look for that sort of thing. But of course, competing for resources in a really difficult landscape. All these things are going to be important. And talking about where and sort of getting out your sort of handle on that is going to come down to sort of the fine resolution of dating. And as those dates shift, their ways around different sites getting different dates. And, of course, the argument progresses. It sounds to me like there's potentially an interesting angle on the ongoing immigration debate there. But <laughs> the bigger debate, and I know that we haven't got time to go into all the various points of contention on this one, but the global warming one is probably worth touching mm. extremely fleetingly. Uh, and the man-made component of that, what's your view well, all, the, all of the evidence suggests that, that um, temperatures are going up and there's basic scientific consensus that the world is warming and it seems to be anthropogenic in its cause, so humans are responsible. I don't think that changes the more fundamental question, which is what do we do about it? I mean, there's the science, which I think is pretty much incontrovertible. There's a lot of, you know, sort of debate about the minutiae, about what might happen, but I think the basic physics is there. We're pumping CO2 into the atmosphere. That's a greenhouse gas. The world is going to warm up. The effects of it, we're still trying to understand. And then the effects of what that means for humans and how you respond to that is another separate level altogether, and I think that's where the discussion has to take place. People need to decide what they value and what they want. On a slightly separate issue, whether you're a climate change sceptic or not... Um, I think it's incontrovertible that humans change the face of the planet. We know that from looking at the way we affect the the world around us through, you know, cutting down forests, changing the environment. And in some ways, that effect of humanity is even more pressing than sort of the broader effects of global warming. And so my fear, my, like my immediate fears, are really about the biodiversity of the world and the fact that we've got these incredible creatures in it today, like elephants, for example, um, which are really, really rare and really, really precious and special. And if we don't look after their environment, which is disappearing at a rate that's so fast, then we will lose those animals and we will regret that. Now, I know we will regret that because I can see how people respond when they try to imagine an Ice Age Europe, which was full of animals that today would associate with the African savanna. So if you were to go back 125,000 years ago and walk along the banks of the Thames, you would see straight-tusked elephants, you would see cave lions, you would see hyena, you would see hippopotamus, for example. In London, 
they were here. And it's the same throughout the whole of Europe, these incredible animals, rhinos. We had rhinos here, you know, of course you have the, the you know, really iconic things like the woolly mammoth, which is your iconic Ice Age animal. I mean, great herds of incredible animals, all gone now. Now, it was either the climate change or the presence of humans or both that caused the disappearance of all these incredible animals from Europe. And people still miss them. You know they do. They want to bring them back. Whenever you talk about mammoths, the first thing people ask you is, are you going to clone a woolly mammoth? And it's because people want to see them. But what's so insane about that is that, well, you know, you've got two living elephant species. The closest thing we have today to a mammoth is the Asian elephant. And we've still got it, but it's very, very rare. And if we look at what happened to the woolly mammoth across the world we you know, whatever the cause of its extinction was because there's a debate as to whether it was all climate or all humans or both whatever the cause was we can see from the patterns that this is what happened the woolly mammoth was everywhere huge herds of them millions of woolly mammoths and then bit by bit those massive herds contracted into small little pockets and one by one these little pockets of mammoth populations winked out like that until finally there was one remnant population on a tiny island off the coast of Siberia called Rango Island 4,000 years ago, so actually very recently the pyramids have been built, but this one tiny island there was this last population of woolly mammoths still clinging on, and they were gone. Now, at the moment, what you see across Asia with the Asian elephant, now it used to be everywhere, you know, all the way across Eurasia, India, into China, Indonesia... If you look at the present-day distribution, that big, 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 wide population of many, many Asian elephants is now just a small number of tiny pockets of elephants isolated from one another, and we're still encroaching on them. And the lesson from the mammoths is that if we aren't careful, we're going to lose those too. But we could stop it from happening. Well, the, the, the We've obvious. gone off London here, haven't we, again? So We've yeah. gone off London, yes, we have. <laughs> I think we'll forgive that, though, because we're dealing with, uh, with uh, things that are the most fundamental and important. What you said about the, the evolutionary advantage of being big for elephants is definitely in the negative column Absolutely. for them, isn't it? Because it presumably only takes one or two poachers exactly. to slip in under the net and exactly. uh, they're gone. Exactly, exactly. I mean, if you're, then they, they breed slowly. Their populations can't bounce back quickly. They're very, for that reason, they're very, very vulnerable. Yeah, it's very sad. But it's not, it's sad, but it's not hopeless. And that's the thing to remember, it's not hopeless. And I think if you've ever, if you've ever, ever had a kind of a, a, a dream of, of going on safari or, or just enjoying those kind of wonderful images of a world filled with animals, it's, I think it's because, I think as humans, we, we really value diversity and difference. And I don't think anyone really wants to live in a world that's a bit samey and boring. And so it's, it's worthwhile preserving it. And it may feel far away sometimes, but it really isn't. Londonist.loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. You're listening to London is Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolf. We're at the Natural History Museum. My guest today, Dr. Victoria Tory. 
heritage and we've been talking about endangered species and Tori you've been cultivating and uh, promoting and uh, reviving an endangered species I think it's an endangered species the uh, the female paleontologist <laughs> <laughs> first of all congratulations on doing what you're doing secondly congratulations on the incredible name and you mentioned before we started recording that you're fond of a pun uh, yeah. the organisation is called Trowel Blazers yeah, which is a work of genius and uh, there's some pictures on the on the front of the website and they are a female scientist from across the years. Some of the photos are those very old sort of mid-Victorian ones where, in fact, the lady in the picture looks a lot like a fossil herself. Some of the others are more uh, modern and you've got the Amelia Earhart types and uh, people with their heads in ditches and all sorts of stuff going on. What is the scope of uh, Trailblazers? Trailblazers is a uh, website that aims to highlight the contributions of women to the trowel-wielding fields of geology, paleontology and archaeology. Um, gardening as well I suppose could come into it if anyone wants to submit but no Um, uh, because one thing that I came across as part of my own research which really surprised me was that the number of women working in these fields at a very early stage because these are all very young sciences were much much greater than I realised now my own research in the Mediterranean has involved following in the footsteps of one particular pioneering paleontologist called Dorothea Bates. Now, I use her archives, like her old diaries and her old maps, to go and find the places that she worked, where she found the fossils we've got here in the museum today that I work on, so I can go back to those places and bring modern methods to bear on the places she worked at to kind of try and get some more information about how old these fossils were. And in doing so, of course, I started to get to know Dorothea Bates a bit better. You sort of you can't help it when you read her diaries and things like that. But I always had this idea in my mind that she was this extraordinary, remarkable woman. I mean, think of that. She first came to the Natural History Museum in 1898 when she was just a, a teenager, like a, I think she was 19 years old. She walked up to the front door, I mean, this is the Victorian times, and she demanded to see the curator of birds. And he saw her. She asked him for a job and he said no. But she saw, started, she wouldn't leave. She started sorting bird skins and eventually he saw that this was not some flippity gibbet who didn't know what she was talking about. She really knew her stuff. And because she impressed him so much, they started a correspondence. He supported and encouraged her. And in 1901, in her early 20s, she went off to Cyprus on her first solo expedition quite extraordinary at that time you know and so I was like wow you know imagine that you know really really contravening the idea of the Edwardian and Victorian woman really brave you know, so unusual look at that breaking down the you know the bastions of the male establishment and that was a really beautiful story to tell and it really resonated with everybody I told it to except it wasn't actually correct because when she was on her next trip which was to Crete in 1904 on that trip, she happened to go by the excavations at a place called Gornia, which is one of the most important Minoan sites on Crete, probably more important than Knossos, the very famous place, um, which is often associated with the myth of the Minotaur. Now, Gornia was this incredible town, a whole Minoan town that was being excavated, and the person in charge of that excavation was a woman called Harriet Boyd Hawes, an American. And in her team were two other women, Blanche Wheeler and Edith Hall. So on Crete in one short period of time, was not one remarkable trowel-blazing woman, but four. I mean, that just changes this idea. I mean, the idea that Dorothea Bate was unusual, I mean, she was remarkable, yes, but she probably wasn't as unusual. And that simple fact irritated me a whole lot more than 
I think just this general idea of one woman being forgotten. Now, you can't expect every single person's name to be remembered forever. Most people couldn't name an archaeologist at all from that time period, male or female. But if you ask someone to picture an archaeologist, I think, from the early 1900s, they would picture a man, a white man, with a beard. That's basically what you'd come up with. And if you told them there was a woman, you'd think she was something strange, something unusual, something to be a kind of a, a, a curiosity. But actually, there were hundreds of them. Well, now, hold on, I should probably, because you're quite right, I certainly couldn't name an archaeologist from that period, apart from Indiana Jones, of course. Mm-hmm. But what about your insider view? Is it the case that lots of names from that period are known and remembered and male? Mostly. I mean, but the names that people do come up with are mostly men. And most, and then the men are known better than the women. I think within the archaeology community, particularly when you're a specialist on the site, then you know all the names. But I think more broadly, I mean, for instance, there was a recent BBC programme called The Secret History of Archaeology, and it forgot the biggest secret, which was there were women working. It re- think mostly referred to Mortimer Wheeler, who's a very famous and charismatic archaeologist who founded the Institute of Archaeology at UCL now. And um, he was a great TV personality. He was a real great populizer. And um, so because of that, there's a lot of archives of him. And so, of course, it relied very heavily on that. But it did mention one woman in that setting, a woman named Kathleen Kenyon, as, and it referred to her as his assistant. Now, Kathleen Kenyon was the director of the Institute of Archaeology. She was more than somebody's assistant. She was an incredible and important figure in her own right. And she was one of actually Wheeler's protégés, but not Mortimer Wheeler, a woman called Tessa Wheeler. Mortimer Wheeler's first wife and Tessa Wheeler used to really run the majority of these excavations and it was really with her and Mortimer together that changed the face of archaeology and trained up an entire generation they had this big excavation at a place called Maiden Castle in Dorset if you look at the pictures of that it's mostly women excavating there lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of young women coming through this is all slightly later this is the 20s so Dorothea Bates time slightly earlier even then there were all these women working in the field and that's what I think threw me because it's one thing to forget one person's name and it's a completely different you can excuse that right you can say okay you know she was a rare individual we can't remember everybody of course these odd ones get forgotten but when entire you know entire bodies of work entire schools of people just the entire concept of that type of archaeologist has disappeared from the popular imagination, then we've got a problem. Because if you look at a paleontology department today, when we see ourselves as doing much better, there's still a problem with gender disparity. There are still mostly men in senior positions. There's a lot of young women coming up. They don't always make it through to permanent jobs. But even so, there's gender disparity. We've got an issue. We're not at gender parity at all. And it starts with like a very similar situation. You know, you've got quite a large number of women working, but who's going to remember us in a hundred years time potentially unless we all make the effort to redo it because these women were there and they were doing really good important work at the time their colleagues and their male colleagues some were dismissive but most treated them as as equals intellectually at least and yet we've just written them out en masse from history these are the symptoms what is the cause of this uh, malaise I don't know know, actually I mean a lot of it I think is um, because it's easier always to tell a a lone hero myth whether it's male or female and so we we cling to it's much easier to tell that story than it is to tell about the sort of messy kind of slightly tedious reality of of how research works which is large numbers of people working together so it's always easier to focus on one individual and tell the story around them and so on one hand that works in favor of the of the people in power so the people who make the big professorships because they're the people who often yeah you tell have a long and illustrious career and who have um the power and the contacts to make the influences leave their archives behind and you know things like that 
And then also, I think, because we have our own agenda, we think we also want to find these kind of unusual heroines in the past too. And so in some ways, it helped, in some ways, maybe we wrongly try to um, sort of exacerbate the difference by sort of saying how incredibly unique Dorothea Bate was or look how extraordinary Mary Anning was or things like that, because it makes a better story. And But if you keep on digging down, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of women involved. Now, it is also really important to remember that before the 1950s, though, very few of these women had professional positions, but then very few of the men had professional positions. But quite often we refer to the men as scientists and the women as amateurs. So Mary Anning often gets referred to as an amateur paleontologist, but in fact she was one of the few professionals around the time. She was making money out of her work. The rest were just gentlemen having fun around the edges of their fortunes. But yeah. <laughs> well, I feel, I feel like, I mean, you're very good human about it, but it seems atrocious to me that, and I think it does to you as well, that this kind of cultural amnesia is going on. I wonder if we could linger on that for a moment longer and try and understand. Is it, I don't quite buy into the idea of something along the line of the victors writing the history. It doesn't seem like it's a, a winner-loser situation. I wonder if there's anything around the idea of women at a certain point in their career falling away for reasons of family, but it doesn't s- still really explain why their early work drifts not, away. Not really for these earlier women. You can't use that as an explanation. Mm. Some of them when they got married had to leave their jobs for because their husbands wanted them to or because they weren't allowed to continue working but actually particularly before the 50s when it wasn't a professionalized field so much most of them didn't because they were doing it as amateurs and so they just kept on working and most of them um actually a lot of them didn't get married and didn't have children there were some that did and some that didn't so harriet Boyd did get married and had kids but and continued working i mean they all did extraordinary things as well like they were nurses in wars and you know, you know they just they were there you know, they would just go out there and get their hands dirty and everything they could do i mean incredibly adventurous individuals um from a very privileged background i mean there are, that's and i think that's a really important thing to remember that these were they were conventions it's not that it's good i'm not trying to say that that there wasn't any anti they were they were having to face or barriers but because most of them were from wealthy intellectual sets there were fewer barriers to their participation than maybe we envisage I mean so they didn't have to make money and they could do they had their own money and they could pretty much do what they wanted and that solves a whole manner of prejudices half the time and we should remember that today because yeah I mean if, if we think we've got a gender problem in science then we actually have a much bigger class problem an ethnicity problem I mean it's a very 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 white middle class upper class field I'm glad to hear you say that, by the way. That class problem, I think, in very many areas is uh, really a, a very great issue. I want to find the answer to this, but I don't think we're necessarily going to. But it, it seemed, it, I can't quite believe that there isn't um, design going on there somewhere. It seems too yeah. too remarkable otherwise, doesn't well, it? Well, I suppose so, but lots of things look like they're designed and they just happened. So. <laughs> well, I suppose. Look, at, look at all of life, for example. But, uh, you know, it's it's one of those... I think it is one of those things is that, hu- that humanity is messy, society is complicated and cultures are complicated and pinpointing a single cause is often maybe pointless. We want it, but there probably isn't one single thing. It's just all these confluences that happen and shape the way that we are today. And, um, you know, I think it's... I think personally that that there's a an aspect of um of cultural amnesia because for many many years women's contributions was considered to be less important and so there was a kind of so even though within their fields these women individual women would have been respected I think outside of those fields people were more likely always as they often still today to turn to a male expert over a female expert for the similar situation and we see that 
evidence of that today as well. I mean, there's a difference between sort of what is a male expertise and what's a female expertise. You can see it all the time. Could you give me an example of that? I think this is probably a little bit controversial, but I suspect if you were a TV company or, um, I don't know, trying to get a guest on a show, for example, and I think this has actually been sort of reported in other places, I think if you wanted to have a, um, a, a kind of a serious debate... Newsnight or something like that, they might be more likely to go for an older male academic on average. If you wanted to have a kind of light-hearted breakfast TV type of debate, they might ask for someone who's young and maybe female and bubbly or something like that because of the different idea of settings. So I'm often the accessible face of science, I think, as opposed to the scary. I'm not very scary, unfortunately. I'd quite like to be because it would challenge some stereotypes, but that's not who I am. But I mean, I'd always, I think, come across as the accessible face of science and um, versus, say, um, I don't know, the cantankerous, serious, ageing Don. Well, you've, men- you've mentioned age a couple of times mm. there, though. Maybe that's an important factor. Well, it is, I guess. Um, we'll see if I manage to cling on in science to sort of hang on to I'm older, because that's a big problem as well. This is what we call the leaky pipeline. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, people, I mean, I've, I mean, for instance, I've been asked, I often get asked my age when journalists interview me, which I don't think they would ask my male colleagues. It's a bit weird. So. <laughs> Wow. When we came in, uh, you, you've got a chaotic... I know your office isn't always chaotic. Um, I, I'm certain of that. But it's at the moment, it's characterful, but very comfortable. But, but what I realise is that actually there's a lot of precariousness, potentially, in your profession, for, oh. for you. Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, most people... I mean, I'm what's called an early career researcher. And most people at my stage in their scientific career, men and women, are on what's called fixed-term contracts. So we write grant proposals for projects and we apply for funding. And those funding, if it comes in, it funds our job. So I'm very lucky at the moment. I'm currently funded by the Lever Hume Trust, which is a charitable trust, um, until January 2016. Um, but then after that, it's the next stop. It's about being freelance in some ways. So science is a very precarious profession in general and it you know it can take a long time to get a permanent job and actually very few people can because there are an awful lot of people who do science PhDs there's quite a bit of money for doing what we call postdocs postdoctoral study but less and so there's a kind of a a drop off there but then the actual number of permanent jobs so lectureships and professorships things like that it's a very 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 small number so even the truly excellent may never ever make it through to that stage and um, yeah, so it, it's precarious. But I mean, I guess the downside is is that you do it, you do this, and yeah, you jump for these hoops because you're fascinated. And like, science, the questions they get under your skin, and you want to know the answers, and that's what keeps you going. And so you know, so it's which is unfortunate because it means you don't really have much bargaining power. <laughs> Unionising is not an option. You're kind of you know you're you're a bit of a slave to the questions, and therefore you you know you put up with this kind of stuff. And if, if my understanding of the of education policy in the UK is halfway right, I think more people are being driven towards the sciences at the moment. There seems to be a move in that direction. And my, my understanding, I think, was that there are more females entering science-y things very early on than there are male. Uh, no. Oh, is that not no, correct? No. no, it's improving. It's improving. We still have some problems, particularly in chemistry and physics. So in the life sciences, yes, at undergraduate level, so life sciences and medicine, there's actually a swing in the other direction. There are more women at, at sort of degree level than there are men. It's interesting to see how that will translate into actual professional job levels because, you know, whether you know, if there's going to be a bias later on that might have an effect. But at the moment, life sciences are doing pretty well. Um, in fact, you could almost argue we need to get more men back interested in them as well because it's not good for anything anyway to not have diversity. 
but the but the um, chemistry and physics and maths and engineering is still a real problem there in terms of there being a big um, a big uh, male gender bias and a lack of women and girls going into it it's improving but it's a real problem and I mean there are lots of potential reasons for that I think which all need to be addressed and cultural ideas of what, what girls are good at um, in, how we sort of socialise our kids from an early age to make them feel confident in certain situations and not in others um, and there's good evidence to show that these things filter through. I mean, it's a ridiculous study. It makes you want to cry, actually. It's not it's a good study, but it makes me, the outcome is just, it's just it's, makes you, it's so, it just feels so ridiculous. But apparently, if you um, ask a girl, in the, so they ask these girls to um, identify their gender before doing a maths test, in the, and some of them they didn't ask that for, and those that had to identify their gender, they did worse. This idea that the minute they thought of themselves as a girl, it's almost like their comp- it's almost like that affected their ability to see themselves as being able to do maths. As it was the interpretation, it's be- because we all have these kind of unconscious biases of what are male subjects and what are female subjects. I mean, even I mean, I even somebody who you know is very passionate about the subject, I'm having to do with my own unconscious biases as well because I have them too. And you know, you, I did this. There's this test you can do online. I can't. Remember, I think um, to test your unconscious biases, and I was horrified. Mine came back with sort of you know thirty percent bias or something like that it's awful it's true isn't yeah. it there's a reflexive thing i've often mm. noticed it if you've you, you're a stereotypical man and woman in a room and something needs doing of a particular type for example if it's a, a child related thing then naturally the, well, the woman is mm. turned to or if it's a physical thing then the man is turned to and there's no rhyme or reason behind any of that no. in particular just a reflex that we need to overcome yeah yeah exactly and because it's no and it's and, it, and it's in both directions as well because it's awful to think that little boys are being steered away from subjects that they might be fascinated or you know want to do for the same reason so it's it's not good for anybody to have these kind of constraining ideas on their sort of intellectual and imaginative development but I mean I think the interesting like pushing people towards science it's good to remember actually that I'm talking about a particular type of scientific career which is the academic scientific career that's not all of science I mean having an entire nation of individuals who have got this incredible knowledge about the way the world works gleaned through understanding biology and chemistry and physics and maths and engineering would be extraordinary if they went on to do other things that aren't academic science in from being an engineer which can be anything from building space rockets down to um designing the way you know a city should work you know these are fundamental things to um i don't know planning like the like water usage in parts of the world that have got no water i mean that's a fundamental thing we need to sort out that needs engineers i mean it's a really like human need um you know, they, they all need skills these are jobs that people practical jobs people can do and actually even just if you just did you know if you don't want to do anything like that but you, just, you want to have a nice quiet life have an office job but you can work nine to five and go home and have nice holidays and just you know have a nice comfortable family existence still having that knowledge opens up your eyes to the world in a way which is just extraordinary i mean just knowing it makes you look at your city in a completely different aspect so dragging it back to london i would say <laughs> I would, you know, I would say that paleontology, you know, it's just, it doesn't matter if you don't become a paleontologist at the end of it, just knowing that beneath your feet, potentially, are the bones of a mammoth or a hippo or a lion is just something which blows my mind or which should blow anybody's mind. I mean, it's just extraordinary. You're going to tell me if this is a stupid question, I hope. Is prehistory a booming business? What I mean by that, it strikes me that there are, of course, lots of new ways to, to understand the past. I, I don't know, just picking something at random our understanding of genetics has obviously come in leaps and bounds in recent-ish years but we're talking about advances in how we look 
back there, it, it seems to me there must be a finite and probably decreasing amount of stuff to to, to find, right? Uh, no. No. Okay. So. No, I think it only, I think the more questions the more questions we ask, the more we realise we don't know, and so the more avenues that open up. Now, admittedly, obviously, like um, and the fossils themselves are a finite resource, like any kind of mineral that's in the ground. So if we dug them all out, then we would be you know we'd have no more digging to do, but we won't dig them all out because we they're, they're, we build on things and there are always going to be new discoveries that turn up by chance. Even what, But once we've got those fossils, there's so much to be done with them. And as our technology improves, then whole new avenues of investigation open up. And that's a really important thing to remember as a scientist because what that tells you is that yours will not be the last word on anything. You are only a tiny little blip in the incremental, hopefully, advance in our knowledge so you've got some of the same responsibilities as, I guess, a conservator. You've got to make sure that your investigations aren't uh, destructive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, we do do we do sometimes do destructive sampling. We call it to so take sections of fossils for analysis, for um, looking at the isotopic composition, or trying to get DNA out of them, or using you know, looking for things like radiocarbon dating. They're all destructive methods, but we have to make sure we don't do so much damage there's nothing left so for instance like i mentioned my project following the footsteps of dorothea bay is an exact example of that when she was collecting the scientific agenda was completely different it was an age of discovery they were just wanting to document the you know the incredible diversity of the ancient world so she went out with the agenda to collect things and to collect things that were considered to be important for museums and there was a kind of financial agenda as well because she had to support herself financially and recoup the money of her trips so she intended to do that by selling her fossils that she found back to the museum at the end of the trip and that would then pay for her expenditure it's kind of like sort of paleontological speculation her her expeditions but of course that affected the things that she collected she didn't want to waste the energy and time in transporting back things that the museum wasn't necessarily going to buy so she focused on the prime fossils didn't collect everything as we would do now and so she only got a small snapshot of the entire environment that her little dwarf mammoths and elephants she found lived in and she wasn't interested in things like how old were they she had no real concept of the you know the kind of the complexity of the ice age you know we know it was much more complex with all these climate changes today she didn't know that she didn't also really have a true idea of the age or how long ago it was i mean she had a guesstimate but she didn't have things like radiocarbon dating to to rely on and so she didn't make the same records at the beginning of her career especially when she was still learning um, that we really need to understand the context of where the fossils came from. So I have to go back to um, try and work that out now. And in places where she used dynamite and just explain, <laughs> yeah, you can understand it actually. Some of the, these Cretan sites are really rock hard. The rocks all cemented with the limestone and stuff. Oh, yeah, you, you can see why she turned to dynamite because she wasn't interested in kind of preserving carefully what was there. That stuff is lost, and we'll never know the age of those fossils, which means there are all kinds of questions I won't be able to answer. If she'd left a bit behind, then we could have actually brought new methods to bear. And it's something which you always have to always have to bear in mind, it's even as an amateur, like if you love fossil hunting and you want to go to, I don't know, along the cliffs of Dorset looking for ammonites, like, you know, following the footsteps of Mary Anning or someone like that then if you find something incredible in the cliffs like a plesiosaur for example do not tack it out leave it because if you can't do it properly leave it for somebody who can and when they take it out hopefully they will leave enough behind that somebody later on will be able to interpret what they did and now what would be best practice in a say an archaeological dig is to leave sort of sections in place so that people can go back and cross-check what you describe the stratigraphy to be the stratigraphy is the layers of 
sediments that the fossils and um, archaeology finds are found in so that people can come back and check and see what was going on and maybe do something with it in the future. And you, let me just get my head clear, you'd recommend uh, less dynamite these days? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> just a minimum uh, amount necessary. Yeah, yes, yes. Rather wonderful image, isn't it, of this Edwardian, young Edwardian woman in her tweed with a sort of backpack full of dynamite scurrying along the cliffs of Crete. I, it, it makes me wonder whether that isn't why her name has drifted into obscurity. Oh, okay. And actually, I would say Dorothea Bate has been rescued in many ways, p- partly by this. There's a really wonderful biography of her written by um, Carolyn Schindler, which you can still get if you Google um, Discovering Dorothea. It's the name of the book. And it's a really wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book all about Dorothea Bate. Carolyn really brought her back to light. Um, and so she actually, she's fairly well known, a bit like, not as well known as Mary Anning, but she even has a, in the in the Natural History Museum, sort of front of house exhibition areas, we sometimes have an actress dressed up as her, walking around, sort of talking to kids. And so, you know, she's, she's um, yeah, we, we, we've got a seminar room named after her, and we've got her specimens on currently on display in the Mammoth exhibition, and also in the Treasures Gallery here. So, you know, she's getting a bit, she's, she's getting her due now. I mean, it's, it's, that's be, that is better, I think. She, we're, we're remembering her a bit more. We're coming close to the end of our hour, and when your European holidays, funded by Leverhulme, uh, come to their end <laughs> in 2016, have you an idea of what you might find yourself doing? Hopefully, Is it- more science. I've got to write another grant to get the funding, so touch wood. How would you like to be remembered at some distant point in the future? What would the ideal honour be? Oh, gosh, that's a terrible question. I don't know. I'd, I guess I'd like to be remembered for doing good, solid science. I, yeah, I think if people look back on my work and say, yeah, she contributed something that was worthwhile and stood the test of time, then that, that would make me happy. Um, I'd be a bit sad if people looked at my work in 100 years' time and thought it was rubbish. <laughs> that seems like a modest ambition. <laughs> we should say, of course, that there's a big noise being made at the moment about mammoths outside in exhibition road you can't miss all the pennants hanging down pointing into the natural history museum and uh, mentioning mammoths are you involved in that side of things at all uh, yeah well, the exhibition yes i mean we partly involved in it it's uh, you know it's it's one of those things our research is part of the exhibition so you can actually go and see within the exhibition itself some of the fossils collected by Dorothea Bate from Crete which I've worked on and it was some of the work that we did on these fossils that she discovered that identified them as the world's smallest mammoth which was kind of nice Um, and they're on display but sadly it finishes on the weekend of the 8th however what isn't closed and is still open until the end of September is another exhibition called One Million Years of Our Human Story and it's all about the um, one million years of Britain particularly a lot of it's from London because of course of this whole southern southern Britain bias and you can go there and you can see these real fossils collected around the UK and things like the hippo that was in Trafalgar Square um we've got uh, you know um, I think I thought some elephants from Essex Ilford mammoth bits and pieces like that uh, which are well worth looking at Boxgrove tibia of this human so from um Sussex that's a very ancient human from Sussex and and the um, cast of those really old footprints I mentioned from Haysborough. It's a really wonderful exhibition and that's on until the end of the month and that's definitely worth seeing because, I mean, if you're going to go and see the hippopotamus, whatever you call it, the hippopotems, the hippopotems, um, this incredible sculpture that's floating in the Thames at the moment, it's really important to remember that whilst it seems it's like, like the, almost the antithesis of natural, this kind of pop art giant hippo floating there, 125,000 years ago, there actually would have been hippos in the Thames at that time. And you can see the real thing, the actual fossils, on display in the museum if you come here and look at them.
Well, the Natural History Museum does very well in terms of visitor numbers without any encouragement from us, but I hope, listener, that that will uh, give you an incentive to come along for now and reluctantly because I think there's just a little bit more to talk about in terms of the history of everything. Dr Victoria Herridge, thanks very much. Thank you very much. That's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Victoria Herridge. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barker. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.